you have your Bible, go to Genesis chapter 50. Genesis chapter 50 will be our text. This morning, we're starting a brand new series uh, called Promises. And uh, just feel like for the first few weeks of this year, I want us to kind of get our mind around some promises that no matter if this is the best year uh, that you've ever had in your life or your family or this church, or whether or not it's the worst year uh, that you've ever had, there are some promises that God has given us that we can hold to and cling to no matter what it is that we face. And so I want you to be here for the next few weeks because we really want to encourage you. I want you to be here every week, but um, encourage you with some things that really I think will help you as you navigate life in a new year. And so this morning we're going to look at the very first promise, and that is the promise of providence, the promise of providence. And we're going to take it here from Genesis chapter 50 and the life story of Joseph. And so if you're able to stand, please do so as we honor the reading of God's Word. Genesis chapter 50, and let's begin reading in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of God, of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants." But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are this day. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask that you would uh, encourage us this morning. Um, I know that there are some in this room right now that need this message uh, from your word. They, they need that encouragement uh, of your sovereignty in their life. And there are others who will. As they face this year, as they face challenges in their life and their family, Lord, let this promise be the anchor of their life, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It was a cold November night in Manhattan, but thankfully warm inside the Starbucks just off Times Square. Uh, A big group had gathered to listen to the music of John Thomas Oakes as he was playing a variety of songs Uh, from the 1940s all the way to the 1990s, and he had everybody singing along. In fact, at one moment in the evening, everybody in the coffee shop was singing along to If You Don't Know Me By Now, when a lady caught John's attention. It was the way in which she was singing and kind of just the expression that she had. And so when John finished the song, he invited her over and asked if she would like to sing she was very hesitant at first, and she thought, no, 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 I, I, don't, I don't want to do that. But he finally convinced her, and she said, okay. He asked her, what would you like to sing? And she said, I, I don't know. Do you know any hymns? And he said, well, sure, I know some hymns. She said, well, pick one. So John thought for a few moments, and he said, how about his eyes on the sparrow? He noticed her face 
was almost frozen. She almost looked bothered, but then she said, okay, let's sing that one. So John proceeded to play, and for the next few moments, that Starbucks in Manhattan was filled with this. When Jesus is my portion, a constant friend is he. she finished that song, that Starbucks was so quiet you couldn't hear a cappuccino machine. The silence was soon broken by applause so deafening you would have thought you were in Carnegie Hall. John noticed she still looked bothered. So he leaned over to her and he said, that was beautiful. She looked at him eyes full of tears and said, it's funny that you picked that song. That was my 16-year-old daughter's favorite song. She died last week from a brain tumor. But for the first time since then, tonight I know I'm going to be okay. And she picked up her purse and she walked out. Do you believe that just so happened? Do you believe that was coincidence? That it just so happened on that November night, she goes into that Starbucks, she just so happens to catch John's eye, is just so happened to be invited to sing... Of all the hymns he could have picked, he just so happened to pick her daughter's favorite song, a daughter who just so happened to have died the week before. Do you believe that the God who is sovereign over heaven and earth is sovereign over the details of your life? Every single one. Do you believe that the circumstances of your life, though often confusing and hard to make sense out of, are never for a second outside the hand of a sovereign God? I hope you believe that. Because that is exactly what Genesis chapter 50 and the story of Joseph's life teaches us. But hear me, dear friends, the story of Joseph's life is by definition a roller coaster. I mean, it is up, it is down, it is high, it is low. I mean, just reading it makes you dizzy. I mean, there are moments when Joseph is like as high on the mountaintop as you could be. Life is awesome. It couldn't be better. 
And in the next moment, he is in the slums, he is in the pit, he is in the lowest part of life. And yet Joseph learns that through it all, from the top to the very bottom, the promise of God's providence that is with him at every moment. Genesis 50 is the end of the story. And I want to work from the beginning and end here in Genesis 50. So I want you to go back to Genesis 37. And you can follow along in your copy of God's Word or you'll see the references on the screen. This story really starts back in Genesis 37 and verse 5. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And if you keep reading, Joseph has another dream that says the exact same thing. God gives Joseph a dream. Now, you need to understand that dreams in the Bible are very different than the way we often think about dreams. You know, we think about waking up in the middle of the night, or we think about daydreaming. We dream about getting married. We dream about college. We dream about our future. We all dream about pastoring a church in Hawaii. Or maybe that's just my dream. But we tend to think that way when it comes to dreaming, but that's not dreams in the Bible. Dreams in the Bible are divine revelations. They're prophetic. God here is giving Joseph a divine word that he is going to be in a position of leadership over his people and specifically his brothers. Now, what's really awesome about this promise is that it's unconditional. Do you know what an unconditional promise is? It means there's no conditions. There are no strings attached. Joseph doesn't have to earn anything for the fulfillment of this promise. It, the promise is made according to the name of God. Listen to how the writer of Hebrews talks about this in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose... He guaranteed it with an oath. Have you ever noticed when somebody makes a promise to you and they want you to know the seriousness of it, they always like appeal to something higher? Like, and I'm not suggesting you should talk this way, but you've heard somebody say, I swear to God. Why, why are they doing that? Or, or I promise on the Bible, or I swear on my mother's grave, or, or something. Again, I'm not saying we should talk like that, but I am saying what's happening when people talk like that is what? I want you to know how serious I am by appealing to something greater. The writer of Hebrews is saying that when God makes a promise, he appeals to himself. 
There is nothing greater for which to God, for God to promise on than his own name. How do you get greater than God? The point here, dear friends, is when God makes an unconditional promise, his name is on the line. And so God gives Joseph an unconditional promise, a divinely revealed word about his future uh, position of leadership. And I have to believe that Joseph is going, yes, everything is awesome, right? He's probably singing that song or something like that. It's going to be the best year of my life. God divinely revealed to me this promise. Whoo! sweet, it's going to be smooth sailing. I mean, after all, name it and claim it. Every day can be a Friday or whatever. But if you're ready to crown Joseph in Genesis 37, don't. Because the next 20 years of his life is going to be anything but easy. Don't tell Joseph the promises of God are easy. Because what we're about to walk through in just a few minutes took 20-something years and 10 chapters in the Bible to unfold. Right after this promise that God gives Joseph, he's going to be betrayed by his family. He tells his family the dream here and they don't like it and one could hardly blame them. It's already a dysfunctional family as it is. Jacob, his father, has 12 sons. Joseph is the one he had through Rachel. He loved Rachel the most, and so he loved Joseph the most. And he treated Joseph not like a parent, but like a grandparent. You know what I'm talking about. You let them get away with everything. My parents let my kids do things they never let me do. Joseph got more toys. He got a later curfew. He even got a royal coat that he wore with pride. So when he comes to his brothers and says, hey, guess what? I just had a dream. And you know what the dream was? You're going to bow down to me. You can imagine how they took that. As you continue in Genesis 37 and verse 18, his brothers are out in the field and they see Joseph coming. And some of you know the story. They see Joseph and what do they want to do? They plot to kill him. Reuben talks him out of it. So when Joseph gets there, instead of killing him, they throw him in a pit. And then they're sitting around on their park bench eating their Subway sandwich when a Midianite trader comes by and they think, wait a minute, it's a shame to waste a good profit. So they pull him up out of the pit and they sell him to that Midianite trader. Joseph has just gone from the promise of God to the back of a Chevy pickup truck headed to Egypt. Tell me the promises of God are easy. And I wonder this morning before I continue with the story that I might bring you into the story by saying, I wonder if some of the biggest ups and downs of your life is related to your family. Maybe it's a marriage, maybe it's a brother-sister relationship, maybe it's the relationship you have with your parents, but you can go from heaven to hell in 3.7 seconds when you walk in the door. <laughs> Amen. 
And I wonder for some of you, as you think about 2014, and now you're thinking about 2015, if some of the highest of highs and lowest of lows this year will happen right smack dab in your living room. Joseph's family was a mess. The question before you is, will you trust in the promise of God's providence? Joseph's story continues. He gets to Egypt here in Genesis chapter 39. We see in the beginning of this chapter how Joseph is sold to Potiphar. He's an officer of Pharaoh. And what Joseph does, what, unlike I think what many of us do, is he doesn't complain. He doesn't eh, cry and whine about how hard his life is. What he does is he works. He's just And Potiphar notices it and he says, this guy is pretty cool. In fact, I'm going to promote him to have charge of my whole household. So now life is good again, right? From the promise of God to the pit to slavery. And now all of a sudden he's promoted, he's encouraged, he's rewarded, he's eating good food now. Until, let's just say that Potiphar wasn't the only one that liked Joseph. Potiphar's wife thought he was attractive and seduced him. Joseph fled, but he left his garment. So Potiphar's wife makes up a story to falsely accuse Joseph. And when Potiphar hears the story his wife has told, notice how he responds, Genesis 39, 19. As soon as his master heard these words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled, and Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. Just like that, from blessed to behind bars. I wonder... For some of you to bring your story in, I wonder if for some of you the biggest up and down of your life isn't family, it's the people that you work with. It's the people that you work for. It's the people you go to school with. It's the people you go to church with. People that don't treat you the way you think they should treat you. They talk about you. They treat you unfair. And you're having the best day of your life till you walk in your company's door. And then all of a sudden, boom, rock bottom. And the question for you is, will you trust in the promise of God's providence even in that? Joseph's story continues here. We find him in prison. And in prison here in Genesis chapter 40, he meets two individuals. We see this in verse 5. He meets a cupbearer and a baker, ones that had worked for the king of Egypt. And these two individuals have a dream. Joseph knows a thing or two about dreams, and so he interprets their dream for them. They think that's pretty cool. In fact, the cupbearer will be released from prison and restored back to his position. And Joseph just kind of says, hey, hey, I don't want to ask too much, but you know, it'd kind of be nice if you would remember me. I don't want to ask too much, but remember me. And notice what the last verse of chapter 40 says. Verse 23, 
Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. And now Joseph feels alone and abandoned. And I wonder if some of you this morning, like the ups and downs of your life is from the joy of giving to the defeat of getting nothing. You serve, you love, you try to be good to other people, and you get nothing in return. In fact, they walk all over you like a doormat. And you've given this past year a whole lot more than you've received, and there's points in which you feel confined to a prison all alone. Joseph knows exactly how you feel. He spent 13 years here in this prison. And I have to believe, like at this point, that Joseph has to be saying, because he's a human being, what gives? I mean, it's been several years. And and I would want to say, what was that whole Genesis 37 talk? You know? What what, what was that promise about leadership and promise about being in a place of influence and power, and I'm sitting here staring at a wall. God, it's not how I planned it. This is nothing like I planned. You been there? Reminds me of David Brainerd. Some of you have heard the name. Lived in the 1700s. David Brainerd was absolutely convinced that he was going to be a pastor. He enrolled in Yale. It's one of the great schools of that day to go to be a pastor. And he was top of the class, straight A student, had his whole life planned out. He was going to be a pastor. Everything was awesome. David Brainerd was not only smart, he had what people called, quote, an intemperate, indiscreet zeal. Translation, he had a big mouth. And sometimes he used it. And another student overheard David Brainerd saying some critical remarks about a professor who didn't like the Great Awakening, and that student turned him in, and he was expelled. He went from the top of the class at Yale, life planned out to be a pastor, to expelled from school, spending a few months thinking, where in the world am I headed? What in the world is God doing? So he received a letter inviting him to be a missionary. And if you know David Brainerd at all, you know that even in his short life, he was the greatest missionary ever to be sent to the Indians. But a moment in which all the plans of God seem to be off track. And that's how Joseph feels at this moment until Genesis 41. Two years have passed. Pharaoh has a dream. He demands that somebody interpret the dream, but nobody can. It is at that point that Joseph is remembered and he's brought to Pharaoh where he interprets the dream and Pharaoh loves it. In fact, look at Pharaoh's response in Genesis chapter 41 and verse 38. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? 
Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. Whew! What a journey. Might I recall it for you? Dream. Pit, slavery, promotion, prison, appreciated, forgotten, raised to power. You dizzy yet? Does it look like your life ever? Oh, not the details, but maybe the emotional or logistic roller coaster of life. And what was the dream that Joseph interpreted for Pharaoh? It was this there's going to be seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. You better store up. And they did. And guess what happened during the time of famine? The people of Israel, who had no way to feed themselves in the famine, were forced to come to Egypt. And guess who Joseph is going to come face to face with for the first time in 20-something years? His brothers. Now come here. What would you do? Be honest, you spiritual people, you. I would think I'd probably do something like, Hey guys, you know, I was just thinking the other day, I, you know, the details are kind of sketchy, but I think I remember a time when you threw me in a pit. And if I recall, you were perfectly willing to let me starve. Guess who's starving now? That's not how Joseph responds, is it? Look at how Joseph responds to his brothers. In chapter 43, verse 26. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him on the ground. Now, they don't know he's Joseph. He knows who they are. They don't know who he is. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He's alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. And then notice this. Joseph hurried out. Why? To get his sword. Wrong. Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Why? Come in close, friend. What was it in Joseph's life that would allow him to respond that way? What is it that he believed? What was at his core? What was the anchor that held his life together? We don't have to guess. He tells us. In chapter 45, he reveals himself to his brothers. And notice what he says in verse 5. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. 
for God sent me before you to preserve life for the famine has been in the land these two years and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest, verse 7, and God sent me before you to preserve you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors, verse 8, so it was not you who sent me here, but God. There wasn't a single moment in my life outside the hand of a sovereign God. Brothers, don't give yourself too much credit. Yes, you played a part in this, but my life was always under his providential care. It was God who sent me, which is why in Genesis 50 verse 20, he can say, you meant this for evil, but God meant this for good. Oh, listen, divine sovereignty never erases human responsibility. Joseph's brothers can't say, well, I guess you got us to thank for this. No more than Judas can say, you can thank me for the cross. You are still responsible, but even in the responsibility of man, it doesn't for a moment thwart the sovereignty of God. And Joseph knew it. Every step of the way. There were three things in this promise of God's providence that he knew to be true, and I hope that you will cling to them tightly this year. Here's one. God is good. You tracking with me? He's good. The circumstances of Joseph's life, not good all the time. But God was always good in his circumstances of life. Regardless of reckless fathers, jealous brothers, seductive women, unfair bosses, and fair-weather friends, he knew there was one he could trust always to be good to him, even in the prison cell. And we know the New Testament um, packaging, crystallizing of this story of Joseph in one single verse. What is it? Romans 8, 28. In some ways, I love that that's such a popular verse. In some ways, I don't because it's almost cliche. Hear it again with fresh ears. We know. Do you know? That for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. It is what Spurgeon called the pillow on which the weary rest their head. And you would say, whoa, whoa, wait, there are things that I have faced in life that I just cannot believe would be good or even used for good, even by God. And I would illustrate it this way. If I told you that tomorrow somebody would cut my throat from ear to ear, would you say that's good or would you say that's bad? I'd say to you, it depends. If the individual who cut my throat from ear to ear was a robber trying to steal my money, that'd be bad and evil. If it's a throat surgeon trying to remove cancer, it's good. What's the difference? Same event. The difference is motive. 
No matter what the circumstances of your life may be, you can always count on the motive of God in your life being good, brother. The, the, the wickedness and the evil of the world, it is there and people are responsible and we don't, we don't overlook that for a moment. Joseph's brothers won't even look over that for a moment. They acknowledge that what they did is evil, but there is a sovereign hand working it at every step for the good of those who love God. Amen? It, is that deep in your bones? Is it the anchor of your life that God is good? God is good. Here's the second thing, is not only that God is good, but God is in control. Here's what I found interesting as I go back through these chapters is that from Genesis 37 to Genesis 50, God is rarely mentioned. There's a few sprinklings here and there, but rarely mentioned. It's almost though the reader is supposed to be reading this story saying, where are you? What about the promise of Genesis 37, and here's what Joseph has to learn. Are you listening? Are you tracking with me? The silence of God does not mean the absence of God. Some of you need that this morning. The silence of God does not mean the absence of God. The hiddenness of God does not mean the abandonment of God. Look at me right here, dear friends. There are things in your life right now that are ordinary things that God is working in, and you can't even see it. And you got to believe that, that He is absolutely in control. What we need is a deep-rooted belief in the sovereignty of God, because when the crisis happens, and life is out of control, and the tests are positive, Seven practical steps to a better love life won't sustain you. A sovereign God will sustain you. You say, I come to church for something practical. I'll give you something practical. God is sovereign over your life. How's that practical? It's practical because you're going to need that when you're at the highest of highs and life is great and it couldn't be better and you're going to need that practically. Why? So that you don't fall over the cliff into pride. And you're going to need that practically in the lowest of lows and the slums of life when everything's going wrong and everything's falling apart. Why? Because you're going to need the promise of providence so that you don't drown in despair. There has to be that deep belief that nothing in your life is outside the loving hand of a sovereign God. And even though you can't make sense of it all, you're going to have to do what Joseph did and trust in his promise. Here's the last thing that Joseph believed, and that is that not only that God is good, not only that God is in control, but lastly, that God is faithful. I told you we would end where we started. Genesis 50, verse 18. Genesis 50, 18 says this, His brothers also came, and you're kidding, fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. Hey, you remember that promise back in Genesis 37? There it is. 
may have taken 20-something years, but there was never a day in which God had sweaty palms. Is this going to happen? Oh, God knew what He was doing. Chuck Swindoll said it, well, God invented time. It was man who invented watches. Do you believe that God will show His faithfulness and fulfill His promise? And I want to tell you this morning as we close that, and hear me, you can trust this promise even more so than Joseph. Even more. You say, how? I'll tell you how. Look to the real Joseph. The ultimate Joseph. The one to whom Joseph's life is screaming. A a man who was also betrayed by his brothers. A man who was also sold for a few coins. A man who was also falsely accused. A man who was also treated like a criminal. A man who was also forgotten by the very ones that he served. A man who was hanging on a cross and knew the feeling of being alone and abandoned. And how did his story end on earth? He walked out of a grave and took the royal seat at the right hand of God. And do you know what he's doing today? He's offering salvation to all those who will come to him by faith, even those that hated him in the beginning. Your promise of God's providence is a person. His name is Jesus. And if you know him, if you have a relationship with him, you don't ever have to doubt. So do you live in the reality that the God who is sovereign over heaven and earth is sovereign over the details of your life? I hope you do because I don't have a clue what 2015 has in store for you. Maybe the best year of your life, maybe the worst year of your life. It may be pit, it may be prosperity. But I know that you can trust in something the promise of his providence. You can join with a lady on a November night in a Manhattan Starbucks who did not understand the details of her life, but she was able to find comfort in this. So I'll sing because I am happy and I'll sing because I'm free
Let's pray. Father, I hope that we are absolutely amazed at that truth. You watch over us. There's not a moment in which we are forsaken. You are there in every detail. Help us trust you. Help that promise that you give us be the anchor of our soul. In Jesus' name, amen.